uh, whichever of my kids is with her right now, booked into the hall next door. So they're watching me on the screen. The whole time the Olympics was on, anytime anyone who was remotely bald came on the screen, Lily would point at the TV and say, Daddy. Um, so apparently I won the men's 100 meter sprint this year, won gold, and um, large Italian gentleman with no hair. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't know, maybe, I think, this may be a minority view, but I think I'm gonna miss the Portaloos. You know, like one of those friends that you don't really like, but when you don't see them anymore, you miss them? No, okay, just me. They grew on me, they grew on me. Hey, um, today we are getting back into uh, Romans chapter 5. If you would like to have a read along, hot tip, if you are a note, even if you're not a note taker, this week is a wonderful note taking opportunity because uh, this passage is dense. It's richly dense. It is complex and deep. Um, and it will be difficult to take it all in, in one go, but because we're in Romans. This is what Romans does to us. It is, it is a deep well of truth, and everything that we can pull out of it will be um, satisfying to our souls. Um, I just simply, in, in good conscience, can't simplify this too much. This is meant to be the deep stuff that we are looking at today. Um, specifically, what we're doing in the, in the back end of Romans 5 is where we find ourselves, where the Apostle Paul is comparing for us Jesus and Adam. And not only is it dense, but... In terms of application, it's not an immediately practical sermon, right? It's not a sermon that, that ends in, do not steal, live in this way. Um, our passage doesn't go there yet, though the book of Romans as a whole does get there eventually. But more in particular, today is a passage which is about belief primarily, about understanding, um, and understanding which undergirds much of our Christian living and practice and life. It's things we need to know that are a blessing to us. So we're comparing Jesus and Adam. And if you were listening along on the stream last week, what you saw was that um, at, at a key level, uh, what we are seeing is the reasoning behind why justification must be by faith and cannot be by works. This is the big theme of Romans, isn't it? The Apostle has been laboring, laboring to convince us that salvation is by grace and through faith and not by works. That's been the core message of Romans thus far. And here, in looking at the situation between Jesus and Adam, we, we see the reasoning why, the, the undergirding um, why it must be this way, why it cannot be any other way. And it's this, that the problem of human sinfulness has been expounded upon, not just to show that it exists, but to show why it exists. The reason why we um, live in the world that looks the way that we look, um, the reason why salvation needs to be the way that it is, is because we are not essentially good people who do sometimes bad stuff. That is not the, st that is not the state of being for the human race. We are, each and every one of us, corrupted by sin, right down to the core bedrock of our nature, each and every one of us. That's the world that we live in. That is the life that we live because we are children of Adam, because we are descendants of a fallen line, because we are inheritors of a sinful nature, we, each one of us, are born in a fallen flesh with an essential spiritual connection to the first man, Adam, who is defined by his rebellion against God. That's what defines him, and it's what defines us, and this is why salvation can't be by works. From our being up, from, from the, the, the core of your heart of hearts, from your deepest desires through 
to your least desires, we are doomed to be rebels against God by our own very nature. Um, It's like a a genetic quirk passed on from parents to children. We are the inheritors of sin. Adam is our covenantal head. When he fell, we fell, and we are now fallen. And telling a creature like that to worship God with due reverence at all times, pick yourselves up by the bootstraps and behave perfectly, do good works and make yourself acceptable to God, is as effective as telling a fish, stop being a fish. You're a goat now. All you'll get is an exceedingly stinky mess. It's not going to work. Turns out that a fish can't be anything other than a fish. The problem is bigger than do more, be better, can fix. That's that's why he's telling us about Adam. Me trying hard under my own steam is not the solution to the problem of sin. The needed solution is a complete change of being from the ground up. That's the solution to the problem of sin. Skin-deep Christianity, do you understand, isn't Christianity. The the cultural Christianity of a previous generation that put Christ on the side of life isn't Christianity. It's not a philosophy that we are attached to. It's not just a mere set of propositions. It is not mere external religious actions that make us Christians. These are cheap substitutes that are the hallmarks of a fraudulent spirituality. Christianity is a supernatural change of existence. The Bible uses so many images to explain the seismic shift that conversion implies in our being. So many different pictures. Jesus told us that unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it cannot bear fruit. There is a process of death and rebirth that must take place before we can bear fruit. Death and rebirth, unless it falls to the ground and dies. Do you you see how absolute this illustration is? Um, You cannot... Enter or even see the kingdom of God unless you have been born again. You were born and you came into existence in this world. And what it is to become a Christian is something as significant as that. It is a recreation of your being. Jesus told us that whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Moving on into the rest of the New Testament, the apostles expounded, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And again, in Ephesians, he says, you were dead. You were dead. That's what it is to be an Adam. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. Do you feel it? Do you feel it? This is why salvation must be by grace and through faith. If you think you are going to be able to will yourself out of death, you're a fool. The problem is bigger than that kind of solution can provide. What all of this does is to magnify for us, to to bring into focus the sheer size of the grace that God has shown us in Jesus. Jesus can do what we cannot. Jesus alone can take the dead and make them alive. He alone 
can create from nothing. He alone made the whole of creation the first time around, and he can recreate you. And so the conclusion has been that there are two kinds of people and only two kinds of people living on this earth today. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. We are all born in Adam. That's where we all begin. And you are saved into Christ. And all of us sitting here today are one of those two things. We are in the spiritual state we were born in and we are in Adam. Or we have been saved into Christ by grace and through faith. Now, what the next part of our... That's just an introduction, right? It's Romans. Um, What the next part of our passage spends some time expounding on, what Paul does next, is he makes five comparisons to help our understanding. Five comparisons of the effects of the work of Adam and the work of Christ. This is what Adam did and what it accomplished in the world. This is what Christ did and what it accomplished in the world. If you are in Christ, what you're about to look at is five profound realities that you are experiencing right now. Five wonderful promises that you can depend on and lean on and draw strength and confidence from and build your life on and build your hope for an eternity on. And if you are in Adam, this is five appeals that you would come to your senses and run to the Savior to be rescued from your peril. Five good reasons to stop and to ask him to forgive you and do what you cannot. You ready? Why don't we read them? Beginning in Romans 5, verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, which is a, would be translated sin in other versions of the Bible, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Is that? When we dive in, five contrasts. And this is where it's helpful for you to take notes. I haven't given these pithy names because I, I couldn't. It was, it was too hard to do. Um, the first contrast is found in verse 15. The free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. There are two things contrasted here. Adam's sin, Adam's trespass, meaning his, his failure to keep covenant with God, his stepping out of line. 
and the grace and the free gift of God through Jesus. These two things are held up in front of us. Grace and the free gift of God. You, you read that? Grace is God's motivation. What drives God to send Jesus to rescue us? He's like that. Grace. Not because we earned it. Not because we convinced him. Grace and the free gift is righteousness. We, we read this a few verses down. It's made more explicit. So the grace and free gift of God is held up in comparison with the sin of Adam. And as we read this verse 15, I have two questions when I read this and I can't really answer them. I think, great place to start. This is the hardest sentence, the hardest verse to understand in this entire passage. There's two parts to it that I find difficult. The first is this, it says that many died through one man's trespass. You see that? It's not just me. Many died through one man's trespass. Which can plausibly mean that, that what we are reading here is that when Adam sinned, I died. That's huge. When, when, did, when did my soul die? Like when, when, did, when was I disconnected from God? And it's plausible from, from, from this part of the Bible that the answer is when Adam sinned. Before I, well, I, I don't understand that. There, there, there are some who, who, who reject this idea. There are many who just believe this means exactly what it sounds like. Through Adam's sin, his action and his choices killed me. That's difficult. That's difficult. That's hard, right? Here's the next one that's hard. We're told that if many died through the sin of Adam, much more has grace and the free gift abounded. That's confusing, isn't it? Think about it with me. It, it seems to me, it seems to my ears, to my noticing of what happens in this world, that more people are separated from Christ than reconciled to him. I, I, I haven't been alive throughout all of human history. I don't know if it was always so, but at this moment in time, it at least feels like genuine Christians are the minority on the planet, right? Death spread from Adam to literally everyone who ever lived and will ever live. And Christ has redeemed some. Not all. There is a hell. And so how is it that we can say, even though death came through the one man, that grace has abounded more so than sin. Do you feel it? It's hard to understand. Both of these, these questions are probably the toughest things to understand in this whole passage, but just for a moment, assume with me something that it's true. That even though it's hard to understand, even though I don't have comprehension of how these things could be or how they are fair, or what if they're true? What, what does that change? If it's true that Adam's sin killed me, that explains the world. Whether we like it or not, look around you. Everyone's a sinner. And if Adam's sin killed me, how, how dark is the darkness? How hopeless is that? That my eternity without the intervention of God is a foregone conclusion. If this is true, the dark is dark. And if grace really is abounding 
more potently than the consequences of sin, how abundant must be that outpouring of grace to outweigh it? What could it possibly mean? (laughs) I am, this is what I conclude when I read this passage, I am underestimating the nature of the grace that I am receiving and its weight and worth. Contrast number one, it's a doozy. Contrast number two, verse 16. The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Here we have a contrast between the consequence of the life of Adam and the consequence of the life of Jesus. And they are directly opposite. This This is a contrast of outcome. Adam's trespass brings condemnation and the free gift of Jesus brings justification. That's the contrast. Adam brings condemnation. Jesus brings justification. It's a contrast of outcome and it's a contrast of input. One sin brought the many into judgment and one man's free gift after many sins brings justification. One sin condemned the many, the all, a single sin, condemned us all to die. It really is saying that. Through one man's sin, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But Christ has single-handedly redeemed the many and was able to do so not just after one sin, but after all of them. Another thing to notice here, notice that neither the problem nor the solutions, nor the solution, sorry, has their origin in you. The problem is the result of one man's sin. You're not him. And the solution is the free gift following many trespasses and it's not your gift to give. The state of the world that we live in, this is what we need to realize, is so much bigger than your one life. You and I, we are details in the story, but it's not our story. We aren't the center of the world. We live in the world. We have to cope with the world. This message really is for us, but this kind of puts us in a place. There is a certain accepting of our place in the world which is involved here. And what Adam is, the representative of humans, what he has contributed with his single action is condemnation. He condemned us all. That's, our human, that's the human race's contribution to the gospel. We made it necessary. And yet Christ has single-handedly, by offering his perfect self to God, justified us. Justified us, the word. Made us right despite not one, but many sins. Feel that, feel that. If one sin was enough to condemn us all, how significant is sin? How poisonous the poison? But many sins cannot stop Jesus from justifying any and all whom he pleases. All who receive his gift are brought salvation. It starts to build a picture of you, doesn't it, between the relationship of of grace and sin, 
Sin is a powerful force. It really is. It's not a thing to be trifled with or taken lightly. But sin is not the equal opposite of grace. We we don't believe in the, the yin and the yang. We don't believe in an equal dualism in life. Sin is potent, but God's grace is much more potent. The work it accomplishes supersedes, defeats the consequences of sin. Where sin and grace collide, grace is and always will be stronger. Shine a light on that first comparison, perhaps. That where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. You are in Adam or you are in Christ. And for those who are in Christ, we have the confidence that grace is stronger than sin. Contrast number three, verse 17. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We started hard and now we're getting exciting, right? I mean, it's all been pretty good, but this is, this is next level. Another contrast of effect. Adam's trespass didn't just bring condemnation, it brought death. Death reigned through that one man. Do you think about that? Death reigns. Isn't that sad? It rules unopposed. It, 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 come, it, it came and is coming to all, and no one could defeat it, so that death could be said to reign in this world. It is the ruling force, the power which no other earthly power can oppose. It is our final enemy. It comes for us all. One in one dies. Death reigns. But much more, not more because of the number of people, but more because of the effect, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift will what? Reign in life through Jesus. If, if death could be said to reign unopposed, what does it mean that now God's children reign in life? What could it mean other than that we have mastery over death? There is a force in this world which is stronger than death. The life of God and his kids. Death has lost its sting. Yes, it's still coming for us, but what we will discover is that death cannot keep us down. Even death. And now notice this, this this tantalizing promise on the edge of understanding. Death no longer reigns in us. Death no longer reigns in this world. Death will not reign in the next world. We who are in Christ, who have received his free gift of righteousness, reign in life. That starts now. Meaning, you and I are immortal. Starting now. Like, is this, is this a reference to our eternal role in creation? Have you, have you read that part elsewhere in the New Testament where it tells us that we will judge the angels, speaking of rule and reign? Got no idea what that means. It's tantalizing though, isn't it? 
that the effect of the righteousness of Christ given to us is to elevate us to a kind of station in existence which we would never dare suggest that God would give to us. We reign in life. We live as a part of God's house. We are co-heirs with Christ. Death has reigned, has ruled. It has worked its will unopposed. Not in us, not in those who love the Lord. In Christ, we reign in life. The dark powers of this world fear you far more than you know. Contrast number four. <laughs> now we're doing it for time. Those poor kids, people upstairs. I'll, I'll try and go faster. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Here we are again of a, in, a, in a contrast of input. What did the two men contribute? One trespass led to condemnation. One act of righteousness led to justification. Here we have to put a little, a little asterisk next to the word all. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. There are some who, I mean, I like, I like the spirit, have tried to read this verse as saying that Jesus has literally justified everybody and nobody's going to hell, if only it were true. For, for, this, for this to mean this, we'd have to ignore the fact that that idea is the precise opposite of everything else said in the rest of this passage and the whole rest of the Bible. If you're willing to do that, have a crack, go for it. That's sarcasm, don't do that. All men who come to Jesus, that's what it's talking about. All, all humans who come to the Savior. Just a, a verse or two beforehand, we were told that Jesus has rescued the many. But this calls our attention to the details. What was the one trespass? This is, this is just a moment to just marvel at what Jesus has done. What was the trespass? What was that one trespass? And what was that one act of righteousness that we are having our minds called to? The trespass, the, the sin of Adam, what was it? What was the sin that brought us all into, into condemnation? What was the sin that has caused death to reign? The sin was to doubt God and to break faith with his commandment. To disbelieve him and act accordingly. Isn't it? Adam was told in the garden, don't eat from that tree, it'll kill you. Everything else is good to go. Satan's lie came. Did God really say? Yes, he did. He's lying, says Satan. He's holding out on you. And Adam believed the lie rather than believing God. And so his actions changed and he broke faith. That is the one sin that led to condemnation for all men. What was the one act of righteousness that has justified us? Christ believed God. Don't you see that in his life? 
That's where it starts. He took God at his word. Do you remember him being tempted in the desert by the same Satan who appeared to Adam in the Garden of Eden? To Adam, he said, did God really say? And Adam gets to, um, uh, um. Eve, Eve does, Adam's sitting there quietly letting it all happen. Then he lies. God is lying. He's holding out on you. In the desert, Satan appears to Jesus and says, I will give you the world if you will bow down and worship me. It's the same lie. God's not really the king. I'm the king. And if you just worship me, I can give you it all. He's holding out on you. He's taking you to a cross. I will give you the world if you would just worship me. Unlike Adam, aren't we so glad that unlike Adam, that our Jesus believed God and rebuked him with the words of Scripture, the promises of God and the commands of God and who kept faith with God's covenant, who did what you and I cannot do. Here's the important lesson for us in this. On what basis am I justified? On what basis am I justified? In one sense, we answer faith. Yes, correct. You are justified by faith. That statement is true. But ultimately, it's not the answer. That is not the basis of your justification. Salvation by faith is possible because of a deeper truth. We are justified. Faith is how I obtain justification. But it's not what justifies me. What justifies me is Christ's act of righteousness. His perfect life culminating in his offering himself on the cross in my place and for my sin. What am I justified by? The answer is the cross and resurrection of Jesus. That is the basis of the thing. I depend for my salvation, not on my actions, but on an historic event that took place even before I sinned. In the same way that I was condemned by an historic event that took place even before I was alive, Jesus has saved me even before I was alive. Do you know this? This, this matters. This, this has consequences. If you believe God at this point, this has consequences in your life like all belief does. The cross works forwards and backwards in time. The only way sin, historic, present or future is forgiven is on the basis of the cross of one man's act of righteousness. Not yours. His. Jesus. And this should create a whole bunch of security in God's chosen ones. There is nothing subjective about this. If that is yours, you are safe. We were redeemed by an act which took place before our birth. It is received by faith and our place in Christ is very, very certain. One more. We'll do one more. Because there's only one more. Verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is largely a restatement of the previous point with one exception. And the word here is made. As by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Hear that? 
So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That word there, made, it means caused to be. Caused to be. Adam's sin caused us to be sinners. But Jesus' obedience causes us to be righteous. Not only counted as righteous, though we are that, called righteous, credited with righteousness. Yes, all those things. But also, actually righteous. (laughs) Holy. Like God. All of this is summarized again. That that is a nice quick one. We're done. Now, all of these things, these five comparisons, are summarized at the end in two verses, which could be a sermon all on their own, but won't be, I promise. We finish with this thought. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. That's the confusing bit that I'm really just going to ignore. Um, But where sin increased, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What we're being called to do in in this passage, brothers and sisters, is to to hold sin and grace out in, in our mind and to consider them at the same time. The nature of sin and the nature of the grace that God has shown us. This is what you're being asked to do. Specifically, what you're being asked to do is to consider, do we trust grace? That it is enough to overcome sin in me. You feel it? It's harder than it sounds. Yes. That sin reigns, that sin increased, that sin kills. We are familiar with this. We know it. We live in that world. But grace abounds even more. And even as sin reigned in death, grace reigns. Reigns. Rules. Unopposed. As a force greater than sin. Do you believe it? Do you believe that grace is sufficient to deal with the problem of your sin? You need to know that grace is stronger than your sin. Do I believe it? Am I depending on it? Do I live as if it is true that grace is super abundant in relation to the abundance of sin? Do you doubt that God can forgive you for what you did? This is where it gets real. Do you wallow in guilt and doubt that God has accepted you even though you're in Christ? So many of us do. You need to know that grace is stronger than sin. It's not that your sin doesn't matter. It's that grace matters more. Do you know it? Do you take practical holiness lightly? Do you think that because you've been justified, that becoming actually righteous doesn't matter? You are underestimating grace, and you need to know that grace is stronger than sin. If you have received grace, you will be transformed. It's inevitable. Do you need to come to Jesus as the Savior and be saved? But you're not quite done trying to save yourself yet.
you need to know that the only thing stronger than sin in this world is grace. Let's pray. Father, this, this passage is a deep dive into how important a thing. How deep is our need to know these things? I stop now and I consider. Do I believe that your grace is more potent than my sin? touches life in so many ways. Lord, we, we here who are believers, ultimately we say, yes, that's, that's what we have come to you for. But there are so many ways I see in my life, Lord, where, where that belief wavers. I see it when I punish myself for my failings in a way which is far harsher than your treatment of me. I see it when I play with sin as a toy, forgetting how narrowly I was rescued from it, how fortunate I am to be in that grace. I I underestimate just how potent a force that grace is at transforming my life. I see it when I keep my mouth closed in this world. Because I don't believe that you can rescue others. Or that their opinion of me would bring my meaning into peril. My Lord and my God, I need to know the potency of your grace, the real thing. I need to know what it is to be brought from death to life. I need to know what it is to be born again. I need to know what it means for the old to be gone and for the new to have come and to be a new creation. And I need that new creation's power to spread to every part of my being and my living, and my believing. Because I need every part of me to be rescued. It is so wonderful to be able to ask you to do that very thing because you are able. It is our joy this morning, Father, to confess that you can do what we cannot do. Death and sin reign in this world. That's easy to see. But give us eyes to see and ears to hear and faith to believe that your grace abounds all the more. Pray this in Jesus' name.